So I don't know if you are a big baseball fan, but uh, I used to be a big baseball fan. Uh, I don't really follow it that closely anymore, but I do know recently uh, there was a big tournament in Japan, the World Baseball Classic, which is basically the, the World Cup for baseball. We have different teams come together to, to play in this tournament to see uh, which country uh, is best at baseball. And this year, uh, the final round, uh, championship round, it was uh, America versus Japan. And so it was an epic game, right? Very close game. And it was epic because of the last at-bat. You had really arguably the best player and the second best player uh, pitching and, and batting. And so you had Shohei Otani, uh, which most people would say he is right now the best baseball player in the world. Um, and, and a lot of people say he's such a unique player. The reason why he's so good is because he's good at throwing and he's good at batting. Uh, if you know baseball, normally you don't do the two, do the two together. They're either pitchers or hitters, uh, but you don't really do the two together. But Shohei Otani is able to do both well. Uh, that he's so good to the point where um, that he was top in, in, in winning uh, percentages a lot of times, and uh, he won an MVP in, in the league already. Uh, in, in, and also during the tournament, he won MVP as well. And so a lot of people are comparing him to Babe Ruth, which is, again, historically, like one of the best uh, baseball players that we know in, 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 our, in the modern era. And there was an interview that was done after the WBC, after the tournament was done because Japan won. Uh, Shohei Otani uh, had the save. He was the one who closed out the game. And there were these, all these baseball legends who were sitting with Shohei Otani, and they're asking different questions. And this guy named uh, Big Poppy, that's his nickname. That's not his name, but nickname Big Poppy. Uh, he's a legend, a uh, Red, Red Sox uh, legend. And he asked the question to Shohei Otani, what planet do you come from? Right? Because he's so good at baseball, people are questioning, is he really like one of us from the human race, or is he an alien or some, some sort? And, and remember, this, is, this question is being asked after he just won this, this tournament. Like he, he, He's still in uniform. And Shohei Otani responds. He says, well, uh, I come from a small town in Japan where not many people play baseball, they didn't even have, we didn't have our own team even, our professional team. Um, and I play because I want people to know that even if you've come from a small time like I do, if you put in the work, you, make, you can make it to this league. And that, that was such a humble response. But also it shows you that you know, greatness is not just given to you, but it's earned, right? Imagine all the days that Shoei Otani practiced, all the work that he put in. Uh, he, obviously, he's naturally gifted in different ways, but that doesn't mean that he, he, he was able to like, be at the top of the mountain immediately uh, because of his natural abilities, uh, but he, his greatness was shaped and mold. A lot of times when we look at all the great people in the Bible, the great men and women of faith, we feel like you know, they are untouchable. They're just born that way, like a Ravon James or like a Michael Jordan or a Shohei Otani. We feel like, you know, naturally they have just this instinct to follow Jesus, to be great, to be a witness. And you're like, they're on just another level. They're born differently. But what we see in today's passage is these great men and women, they all have a humble beginning. Uh, you see in today's passage, Jesus, he's going to collect a group for himself. 
He's going to form and assemble a group that's going to change the course of history. But this group is quite, it's quite remarkable in the very beginning. Um, so we're really going to see two things in today's passage. There are two parts to today's passage. Number one is the significance of prayer. And number two is the, the selection of the apostles. So the significance of prayer and the selection of apostles. Let's look at the significance of prayer first. Uh, verse 12, it says this. In these days, he went out, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus pulls an all-nighter in prayer. And this is remarkable in various levels. Number one, remember, at this point in time, Jesus is about 30. Uh, he's in his 30s. So for me, it is remarkable that a man in his 30s is able to pull an all-nighter. Because just, just wait until you get to that point. Uh, you know, when I was in my teens, like, you know, of course, you don't need sleep. You know, you can go days without sleep. And then you go into your 20s, you go to college, and you realize that your body is not the same. You're introduced to energy drinks and, and coffee, and you pick up all these uh, things in order to stay awake. And then by the age of 30, you're like, okay, it's not worth it. Now, all, this, all, all, all this is not worth it. I need sleep. I would rather sleep uh, than do anything else. So you, you notice the change in your body. Jesus, at this point, he's in his 30s, and yet he's pulling an all-nighter. But... I think it's the way that he prays is so remarkable because it says that Jesus prayed all night, continually. I don't know how long you ever prayed for, like at one sitting, uh, if you prayed for more than an hour before. Um, when I was thinking about this, uh, I was reminded of an incident in 2019 when our youth went on a, a winter a retreat. It was a great retreat. Uh, it was a, a three-day, two-night retreat, and on the last night, really God blessed us in so many different ways. We were hearing God's word. We were praying. Uh, it, was, it was so good to the point that we had to cancel all the evening uh, gatherings and meetings because the service went so long, uh, and it, this was taking place at a campsite about two hours away from here, and so it was great, and I was like, man, this was a great retreat. I just need to wrap things up tomorrow morning uh, because, you know, normally after the morning session, we would come back home. And then I, I hear that there's no water in the cabins. Uh, and that was a big deal, right? A lot of people were blaming the games uh, because one of the games where you put Vaseline on your face and you're trying to pop for different cotton balls. And so people are washing their faces all afternoon. Uh, but, but I was talking to the staff and they were telling me, well, first of all, this never happens. Later I found out that this actually happened before. And so, but they're like, something is wrong with a water tank the water tank that supplies all the water throughout the campsite. And I don't know if we can fix it. Like, we might not have water uh, until you guys leave. And, and, and really, no one really knows this. They just think for temporarily there's no water. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, this is a big deal. And you might think, what's the big deal? Like, you know, not washing your face for a night. But I'm thinking about bathrooms, right? Like, do I start digging holes? Like, do I send kids to the woods? Like, what do I do if someone comes up and says, I really need to use the restroom? And so the only thing I could do at that moment was to pray. I got on my knees in my room, and, and I, I, I just prayed. Thank, thankfully, you know, everyone else was so tired throughout the day, and so they were, they're deep in sleep. And so I'm praying, and I'm crying out to the Lord, God, I'm on my knees. Um, I'm not leaving until you turn on that water. 
like I'm, I'm determined to hear the, the rushing water from the faucet, the, the beautiful sound of a flushing toilet. Uh, that's all I'm hoping for. I'm praying, I'm praying, and guess what happened? I fell asleep. <laughs> I don't know how long I prayed. I wake up, and that, this, I started around um, midnight. I, I wake up around 3.30 a.m., and I'm in the, still in the same position. Uh, my body's like dead. My legs are dead. Like, I thought like, I lost my legs at that point. And so I'm like, okay, at least, you know, I fell asleep in prayer. I, I go on, turn on the water. Is it working? No, it's not. And so I'm so discouraged. I'm like, God, but still, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have a plan. I'll just send someone to get some wipes, and we'll dig some holes, and we'll get through this. Um, and the next morning, praise God, that, you know, the water did come back up uh, uh, miraculously. So a lot of people actually don't even remember this because, you know, it was such a perfect timing. But one thing I learned from that moment is this. Man, I'm really bad at praying for a long time. Like, I thought I can pray all night. I was determined to pray all night, and I just fell asleep. So I feel for the disciples who fell asleep when Jesus was asking them to pray the night before the crucifixion. But Jesus, in his 30s, he is, he is praying through the night continually. He is determined. He is devoted to prayer. And don't get me wrong. This is, I think Jesus probably did this in other occasions, but this is not the norm for Jesus either because this is the only place in the New Testament where you see Jesus praying through the night. Uh, there are other places where Jesus would pray for a significant amount of time, but not necessarily throughout the night. Uh, but I think it's because the significance of this moment um, and so we move into really the why of, of Jesus is, is praying. Uh, why does Jesus pray at this moment in, in such a way? That, why does he pray through the night? I think there are two reasons. Number one is because what happened right before this. If you remember what happened last week or earlier in their chapter, we looked at the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, they're unhappy with Jesus. They're big about the law and Jesus seems to be breaking every single law. Uh, they are big about the Sabbath. Jesus says, well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so because they're clashing in such a way, uh, they want to get rid of Jesus. They're trying to put Jesus to the test. They're trying to trick Jesus so that he would sin. Towards the end of, 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 of verse 11, it says that they were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're determined to get rid of Jesus. So there's this rise in opposition against Jesus the tension is rising. Ministry is getting really, really hard. And so what does Jesus do in the moment when life gets really hard? He goes into prayer. He isolates himself in prayer. And so I think the first reason is because of the rise in tension, the rise in opposition. But the second reason that he spends so much time in prayer and prays in such a way, I believe, is because he has a big decision in front of him. He knows that this decision that he's about to make is going to alter change the course of history, that it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really turn the world upside down. And so he selects 12 people, and he, he names them apostles. And, and one person says when Jesus was selecting these apostles, he had this long-term vision in mind of the church. He didn't just see 12 individuals. He saw the church being born through these apostles, obviously with the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not an overstatement that we are gathered here today because of the prayer that Jesus prayed that night. So Jesus, he is, is making a big decision, and right before that big decision, he's praying. And so how much more should we pray before a big decision, right? 
A lot of times we go to prayer when we are simply in need, when we want something. But before every major decision that we make in our lives, I think God is calling us to pray. If Jesus, who knew everything, who was the Son of God, if he was willing to pray in these moments, how much more should we pray in in these moments and be devoted to, to prayer? So we see how Jesus prays in this moment. But one thing that's also interesting is the setting in which Jesus prays. I think that's quite astonishing. In verse 12, it, it says, he went out to the mountain to pray. Now, I don't know if you've ever been into the mountains alone. You know, one time, you know, I was, I was, I was in the woods alone because, you know, it was near the retreat center. And so uh, I was wondering if I should send the youth to pray at night. And man, it was scary. Like, if you've ever been on camping alone at night, it is scary. You feel like there are ghosts in, 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 in the... Although I'm a pastor, I'm like, man, there could be something in the air. Like, you hear animals all around. And Jesus, he's willing to isolate himself. He's willing to go into the mountains to pray. Why? Why take the, take the risk? By the way, there's no lights or phones at this time. He goes into the mountain, I believe, to get rid of all distractions. I think one thing that he knew is if I want to devote myself to prayer, I need to get rid of distractions. I believe one of the reasons why we really struggle in our prayer life today as Christians is because we are constantly distracted by people and by devices. This is a big deal for us. We live in a day and age where with the click of a button, you have unlimited content. You can entertain yourself. We are so worried that we were going to be bored. Like We get bored so easily. And what Jesus does is he intentionally goes into the mountain. He creates a time and a space. He gives his undivided attention to the Father, devotes himself to prayer. And so he's willing to go into the space alone to spend time alone with the Father. And this is so central. You might say, well, I do the work of God. I come every Sunday. I talk about God to my children, to my husband, to my wife, uh, with, with, with different people. I go to life groups. But the question is, do you spend time alone with God? You know, a couple of days ago, you know, I was having this conversation with my wife, and, and she was saying one day, man, I think we're not talking as much these days. And I'm, I'm realizing, what do you mean? After work, I come home, I don't go anywhere else, and, and we're spending so much time together. Like, we're watching the kids together, we're making food together, we're doing house chores together, we're doing everything together, we're always together after work. And I, I realized that wasn't what she was looking for. She was saying that, yeah, we are together physically, but we're never really communicating intimately. That we're not really understanding what's going on in each other's lives. And so what she was saying is not the physical connection, but she was saying is, I think we should talk more. Like, talk about our lives. We should, you know, have more conversations, meaningful conversations. And, and I totally agree with her. Because you can be with someone, but not be personal with someone. I think a lot of times that's how we are with God. We're around God, but we never really spend alone time, quality time with God. So one question that we can ask in application is this. Um, do you have a time in a particular space to go to when your life gets really busy and hard? Do you have a method where you can spend alone time with God? Uh, are you intentional about protecting your time with the Lord if Jesus had to protect his time with the Father, how much more do you think you have to protect your time with the Father? But you might say, well, Pastor James, you don't know how early I wake up to go to school or to go to work. Jesus, he never had a nine-to-five job. Um, 
Jesus, he never had to take five AP classes or all these college credits, 17 college credits uh, in one semester. Jesus never had children, right? That's a big deal. Uh, like He had time to do all thing, these things. But if you look at the life of Jesus, how he lived during his public ministry, he had people come to him left and right, constantly, sick people, broken people, Wanting things from Jesus. You look at verse 17 in this chapter. It says, And he came down. Immediately after he comes down from the mountain, he stood on a level place. And with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, all from Judea and Jerusalem and all these different places, the seacoast. And so you see that Jesus, immediately when he comes out of prayer, he's, again, surrounded with not just his disciples, but a great crowd. And what does this great crowd want? It says in verse 18, they want to be healed from their diseases. They want to be cured from their trouble. And so you have people with all these problems. They're coming to Jesus out of need. And so Jesus is like this doctor who's seeing patient after patient. His schedule is so booked up. Sometimes it's to the point where he doesn't even get to eat. And yet, you see that he's very intentional about making time to spend alone time with the Father. Because he knows that if he doesn't spend alone time with the Father, everything else that he does, he's doing out of his own strength. But if he prays and spends time with the Father, he's doing things out of God's presence, out of his power. And so we don't really have an excuse. God is calling us to pray this morning, to intentionally devote ourselves to prayer Now, you don't have to go all night with this prayer, but I think you need a time and a space to protect your prayer life, to protect your relationship with God. And if the weight of the situation is is heavier, if you are facing greater opposition in your life, there are more difficulties in your life, if you are facing a greater decision, that's a call to actually pray, that you should go deeper into prayer and listen to God Read his word, commune with God, enjoy his presence. And as you are full of his presence, then all the fear and the worries of your heart will be cast out. And so we see really the significance of prayer, how Jesus prays uh, and, and the setting that he, he prays in. But out of this prayer, Jesus now selects the apostles. So that's the second half of the passage. The significance of prayer and now the selecting of the apostles. It says in verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. And then you have a long list of names, 12 men who are mentioned. And notice it says that Jesus, he first called his disciples. The word means followers. So there were many people who were following Jesus. But out of that pack, he, he hand selects 12. So simply a disciple and apostle is, is, is different. So out of these group of disciples, Jesus selects 12 and he names them apostles, which means messenger or one who is sent. And so you're not just following Jesus now, you're sent by Jesus. And this was a word that was commonly used by a king when he would send an agent, an ambassador on his behalf with his authority to communicate his message. And so you see how Jesus, the eternal king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, as he is proclaiming that I have come to bring my kingdom here, that he is gathering a group of people, a group of messengers, a group of apostles, agents, ambassadors who would do his will with his authority. And so 12 people are selected from this pack. 
there are four occasions where you see the list of 12. Uh, it's in Matthew 10, in Mark 3, in Acts 1, and today's passage. Acts 1, it does lack Judas' name because at that point he is dead. And so we are spending, so we can spend a lot of time just comparing those lists or looking at these individuals. But I think what I want to do is I just want to glance over some of these names, give us just a quick overview of who these people are, and then I want to make some points and some observations, if that's okay, because these people are very central to our Christian faith. Um, verse 14, it says, Simon, whose name was Peter. So Jesus gives um, this name Peter to this guy named Simon, and we already know about Simon. He's a fisherman. He's um, actually the first disciple that appears in all four lists, so you kind of see the significance of Peter. Later on, he is uh, put in this position where Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. I don't think it's talking about the person of Peter, but it's talking about the confession of Peter, but nonetheless, it's talking about how Jesus he's appointing Peter to play the significant role in the early church. I mean, his nickname is The Rock. That's a very cool nickname. Uh, but his life is nothing about The Rock because his life is so shaky when he's walking with Jesus. He's so quick to speak, so quick to act, make so many mistakes, impulsive guy, and so you have Peter. And then you have his brother Andrew, which most people believe that he was actually the first one who was called because he was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. So you have Andrew, and a lot of times, I don't know if we have any Andrews here. I think Andrew is a great name uh, because Andrew is a guy who goes under the radar, but he's known for bringing people to Jesus. First, he brings his brother Peter to Jesus. Second, uh, when it's the feeding of 5,000, he's the one who goes and finds that young kid who has a happy meal in his hand, and he's the one who brings that happy meal to Jesus. And then later on, when the Greeks want to see Jesus, he's the one who brings the Greeks to Jesus. And so his role is like he's always bringing people to Jesus, and people is changing those people. Like, praise God for that. So you have Andrew. And then you have James and John, two very common names. They were fishermen as well. Uh, but we also know that most likely they were born in a family that had quite a temper. Uh, they are called the sons of Zebedee, but also their nickname is sons of thunder. And so, so that's, that's quite scary. It tells you the family's aggressive nature. Their mom is so aggressive that while they're following Jesus, their mom is willing to come to Jesus and speak to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, when you go to heaven, make sure that Johnny and Jimmy are sitting on your left and your right. Like, you, have, you talk about an aggressive mom talking to her rabbi, right? And so Jesus has to teach her, like, you know, the first shall be last and the, the most shall be least. But you kind of see their nature. Um, and, 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 and one thing that's interesting is James, out of the pack, out of the apostles, he's the first one to get murdered for his faith. Uh, John is the only one who doesn't get murdered for his faith. He's the one who dies a natural death. He's li he lives the longest. The one guy lives the shortest, one guy lives the longest. James and John. Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Philip, they're friends. Uh, we see in John 1, Bartholomew, he also goes, goes by the name Nathaniel. And, and he's the one who says when Philip comes to Bartholomew or, or Nathaniel, uh, he says, I have found the Messiah. This is the one that Moses was talking about. And Nathaniel is the one who says, well, what good can come out of Nazareth? This guy, Jesus? Are you serious? And so you have Philip and Bartholomew, who didn't really have a great beginning. And then you go to verse 15. You have Matthew, who is also known as Levi. We looked at his story. 
he works for the Roman government as a tax collector. Incredible story. You have Thomas, who has the nickname, the terrible nickname, Doubting Thomas. You know, so unfair because in other places, he's not really doubting. He's very active in his faith. It's just that one moment in time that he, he tends to be skeptical, and he gets this, this nickname for the rest of his life, really. But he makes one of the most beautiful confessions uh, about Jesus. Jesus, you are my God and my, my Lord. And then you see James, the son of Alphaeus, which we don't know much about him. And you might think, okay, he's not that important. But it kind of tells you that there are people in the Bible where their name is just mentioned, but they did great work for the glory of God. But there's so many people who did great work for the glory of God, they, they can't be mentioned all the time. Like you look at the list that you see at the end of Romans. So many different names that are, have been faithful to the Lord. And so James, we are thankful for his service, his, his, all that he has done, although he is not recognized like the others. And then you have Simon, who is called the, the Zealot. Um, this is not the Zealot from Starcraft, if you know, uh, but uh, Zealot for the people who uh, exist uh, in that time were a political group. They were political activists. They were revolutionary uh, people. They were opposing Rome because they loved their country. They were nationalists. Patriotism, right? And so they loved the Jewish tradition, and so they wanted to burn down the Roman Empire uh, they, with a passion. And so you see this political activist um, in the group. And then verse 16, you see Judas, the son of James, who other places, he goes by the name Thaddeus, and then Judas Iscariot, which we hear that he became a traitor. So a long list of people. Are you impressed with this list? Um, just a couple days ago, I think we had the NFL Combine. Right? I don't know if you're big on NFL. Uh, it's a time of year where... Uh, different college students, uh, different people come to the combine uh, as prospects because they want to go to the next level, the highest level, to play in the National Football League. What an honor. And what happens is 32 teams in the NFL, they gather together, they come together, and they put these prospects through all sorts of tests, medical exams, interviews, physical exams, all sorts of drills. They measure their height, their wingspan, even the length of their hand they measure. Why? Because they want to make sure that they invest in the right person. As they are drafting these prospects, they want to make sure that this person is going to contribute to the team. They want to make sure they get the best of the best. And it makes sense that you would be so selective because you're paying these people millions of dollars to perform at the national level. And so even NFL teams are willing to go through that process to select their group. But what about Jesus? Are you impressed with these names, with this group? Not me. Right? These are not the best of the best. They're not the brightest. Like, these are just regular names. Like, they come from nowhere, really. And it's amazing that Jesus is willing to take these people into their group, his group, um, just look at the place that the recruitment is taking place. It's in Galilee. Not the big-name cities like Jerusalem or Rome, but they're in Galilee, the countryside. And, and they're looking for, he's looking for people. You also see that they're, they're not, the, not the brightest group. Uh, in Acts 4.13, um, there's Peter and John, probably the, the best of the best within that, this group. They're speaking with boldness, and the people are so amazed because they're speaking, but they recognize that these are uneducated people. And so the group that Jesus assembled are uneducated people. Like they're not that smart uh, in a worldly sense. Uh, these people had character issues. 
they were full of, of hate. James and John, again, they were the sons of thunder. Um, they had temper issues. It wasn't just their mom, but if you go to Luke 9 later on, uh, Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans. And you know what James and John says? He says, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? Like, they hate the Samaritans so much. Like, and now, perfect. They rejected Jesus. Let's bring down fire from heaven. That's how much they hate the Samaritans. And yet, you go to 1 John, and five times, the Apostle John says, uh, brethren, let us love one another because God loved us. Like, let's love one another. Like, that command is there five times more than any other book in the Bible. How impressive is that? A, a man who is so hateful goes to the beloved disciple who is full of love. And then these people were full of pride. You think about Peter, like how prideful he was, how quick he, he was to speak. Even when Jesus, when he was predicting that all of you in the Last Supper, all of you are going to run away, you guys are going to abandon me, and Peter, he raises his hand, he looks at his fellow brothers and says, well, not me. All of these guys are going to leave you, Jesus, but not me. Like, I, I'll rather die than deny you. That was his position. Like he, he thought he was better than everyone else. Pride was his core issue. But you go to 1 Peter 5.5, 5, a letter that he wrote, and he says to the church, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Out of all people, Peter is saying this. The guy with all the pride and the ego, he's the one who's saying, humble yourselves. For God opposes the proud. He probably learned a lot. Now, what do we get from this? The principle that I want us to remember is this. The transforming grace of Jesus is great. The transforming grace of Jesus is great. You take a bunch of nobodies, names that, that no one respects, people that no one care about. Jesus puts them together, and what was the difference? It wasn't the people that were gathered there. It was the grace of Jesus, how he discipled them for the years. And he shaped them. He molded them through discipleship. He cast a vision inside of them so that they would live for the glory of God's kingdom. And this tells you that it's not really about your ability or your background or who you are, but it's really about what Jesus is willing to do in your life. Jesus takes the lives of these people. He turns it upside down so that they can turn the world upside down. And the question is, do you believe in this transforming grace of Jesus Christ? If you do so, are you allowing Jesus to transform your heart today? Because a lot of times I think we believe that we're too bad, we're too faulted, like we are too broken. Um, we have made too many mistakes in the past for Jesus to do anything with our lives. We feel like we haven't grown up in a Christian household, so we don't know any better. Some people grew up in a Christian household, and they're like, that's the reason why I can't follow Jesus, because I, I'm too familiar with Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, at the end of the day, what matters is not how sharp you are as a tool, but who's sharpening you. Are you willing to be sharpened by Jesus Christ? The other application that, that you can look at is this. Do you look at other people understanding the power of the transforming grace of Jesus? You know, there are times when we go on mission trips and especially when we go to Pittsburgh for our domestic missions with our youth, uh, we always go to the university area. Uh, we pair up uh, or go in threes and we go street evangelism, talking to strangers about Jesus. Um, and you know what the first thing that people do normally, and I do the same, you scout out the area and you look at people 
and you try to make a judgment call. Okay, who has the most time? Who would not reject us? And you're like, you're so concerned about the other person, right? You feel like based on who you choose, the outcome is going to be determined that day. But the truth is, if Jesus has a plan and his transforming grace is really true, then no matter who you meet, then his grace should be sufficient, right? More than worrying about who we meet, we should be worried about being faithful in our witnessing. How often do we look down on people, especially within the body of Christ, that we feel like that person, man, I don't know when that person will grow up, mature in the faith. Maybe some of our youth small group leaders are thinking, man, our youth, I don't know when they're going to grow up and, 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 and mature. Uh, maybe some of our parents are thinking that as well. But, but do you know that when Jesus sees our young ones, he's not seeing them as just broken people. There's, he's seeing the potential that exists in them as they commit their lives to Jesus, how he can shape and mold them. So never underestimate who to reach out to. Never just leave anyone outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you believe in the power of Jesus' transforming grace, then act as if you do and share the gospel to everyone. But the second thing that we see in this selection of the apostles is this. There's great unity within the group. Great unity within the group. The gospel brings great unity. Um, now, it's not just about individual ability, but now we're talking about team chemistry. Even if someone is great in their ability, if they are not fitting for the team, the color, the dynamic, you would never bring that person on the team, right? So you want to make sure that personal matches. But notice, this team is quite, it, it, it's all over the place. It's, 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 it's confusing. You have people from all different backgrounds, different jobs, different social class, you have people from, with different social, uh, political views as well. You have Matthew, Levi, who is working for the Roman government. And you have Judas, Judas uh, no, sorry, Simon the Zealot, who wants to bring down the Roman government. Two people who have extremely different views when it comes to political uh, issues. And yet, the two are able to be on the same team. Isn't that amazing? They work together. Why? Because they are willing to lay down their differences for the sake of the gospel. I know we live in a day and age where we are quite split politically, maybe in different views, and the world is trying to push us to make a decision left or right. But one thing that we have to remember as a church is this. Within the church, you have all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. It's not about just finding one view or the other. It's about finding the right view in God. Like It's us merging together for the sake of the gospel. So it's not about can I win the other person, but are we willing to lay down our views for the sake of the gospel. If it's for the sake of Jesus, you have to be willing to even lay down uh, your views and your background as well. But the last thing that we see is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Um, the person that troubles us the most in this list is who? Judas. Iscariot. If this was simply a random selection, if Jesus asked the question, hey, who wants to follow me? and be part of the 12 apostles, and Judas was the one who raised his hand, and he was, that's how he came into this group, then you wouldn't have much questions about Judas. You, you wouldn't feel bad about him. But notice that after a full night of prayer, Jesus knowing exactly what the will of God is, he purposely selects Judas Iscariot to this group, which troubles us a lot of times because we know what he does later on. He's the one who betrays Jesus He's the one who, who, who sells Jesus um, at the price of a slave. And because of that, Jesus ends up going to the cross. So the question is, what do we make sense of this? Like, First of all, notice that in the midst of 
God the Father working, Jesus is praying. A lot of times we think that because God is sovereign, because he knows everything, because he's in complete control, we don't have to pray. But notice that Jesus knew all that, but he still prayed. And there's definitely tension between there. There's definitely a mystery there. But one thing that you cannot say is this, I believe in God's sovereignty, therefore I don't pray. Or you pray, therefore, you know, you don't believe in God's sovereignty. No, the mystery of the Christian life is this. God is in absolute control, and somehow he calls us to pray so that a lot of times it would be God's will that is coming down to us so that we will be conformed into the image of Christ and think as God and act as, as, in his character and be like him in all these different ways. And so you see prayer and God's providence working together in a mysterious way, but with the choice of Judas, was that a mistake? No. The Bible is telling you it's not a mistake. That, that Jesus knew from the very beginning that this was going to be the one who was going to betray him. And yet in John 13, it talks about how Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, including Judas. So his love did not change. Now, it was unfortunate that Jesus made a decision to betray Jesus. The thing is, did that decision alter the course of salvation history? No, absolutely not. It wasn't a mistake. That decision that Jesus made did not impact the decision of God to send his son to the cross. It actually helped, somehow, mysteriously helped the, the will of God so that Jesus would end up on the cross. So, it's not a mistake. God, he's still working through the prayers of his people. This also reminds you that just because you pray doesn't mean the road ahead of you is going to be smooth and easy. Jesus prayed, and yet he had Judas Iscariot right in front of him. And therefore, we shouldn't expect just the road to be easy and smooth when we pray. We need to expect that there are going to be still some obstacles. But because Jesus prayed and selected Judas, he was willing to go with him to the very end. He was still able to love him, trusting that this was God's plan from the very beginning. So we see how prayer and providence work together. So the significance of prayer, the transforming grace of Jesus Christ, the gospel brings unity and the sovereignty of God. Four key things that we see in today's passage. And the question now is, how will you respond to God's calling? A lot of us um, know that Jesus um, is quite a remarkable person. But you see different people groups in the gospel today. You see a crowd that's following Jesus. You see a group of disciples who are following Jesus. But then you see a selected group of people, handpicked by Jesus, who are called to be apostles, ambassadors. And it's true that this 12 is in a unique position in church history. But that calling does get trickled down to every believer today. Why? Because Jesus was the first apostle, if you want to think about it. He was the one who was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father as a messenger and Jesus, as the great king, he sends 12 apostles with his mission, with his authority. And now those 12 apostles send their disciples to do the same. And that's where we are today. In case you're wondering, is that true? 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 5, 20 and 21 says this. Therefore, we believers are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to us as an apostle to redeem us, to restore us. He was sent with the authority of God the Father and with the mission of God the Father. In the same way, he is commissioning us today to live a life that's not just centered out on your well-being, 
but to make a difference in this world. And how good are we living out this calling? It's not about really how good we are, but it's how much we are willing to allow Jesus to work in our lives. So trust in him. Give your life to him. The reason why you should give your life to him is because he was willing to become sin when he knew no sin for your sake. So you could be the righteousness of God and become an ambassador for Christ. So let's live as ambassadors of Christ today. Amen.